going to share this morning's scripture with us. Please feel free to follow along. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison, and truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Blessed be the word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord our God. Well, good morning. I am Jasmine Myers. I get to be the artist in residence here, which basically means that when we need our vision refreshed, um, I'm the one who helps us kind of look at the world a little bit sideways. Um, so we've got a really interesting passage today. 
you know, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts a while back, and the guy on it said, you know, when I was a kid, I couldn't wait to be grown up because I thought it meant that I would get to eat ice cream anytime I wanted. And it turns out it's not even true. But that's what a lot of us expect, isn't it? We see adults make their own rules, and as kids we think, great, when I'm a kid, I'm gonna be like those hyenas in The Lion King, going, no king, no king, la 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 la. But it turns out, when we grow up, we find even though you don't quite have those same rules in place, the rules don't really change, do they? You still go to bed, you still brush your teeth, you still say please and thank you, you still don't stick your tongue out at your coworkers, even if you're tired and crabby. I mean, most of the time, some of us keep that tradition alive. What changes, hopefully, are your intentions. As a kid, you do something because you might be rewarded. As an adult, you go to bed on time just because you know how much you need the sleep. As a kid, you do things because you might gain approval. As an adult, you do it because doing it matters to you. As a kid, you do things to avoid punishment. As an adult, you do them because you love the people that those things affect. In the book of Galatians, Paul talks about how Jesus redeemed us from being children under the babysitter of the law to being grown-up heirs of God. Until Jesus came, we were just keeping the rules, and Jesus transformed our relationship with God our Father. That doesn't mean that you're always going to understand in the moment why God asked something of you, but even if it is something that you just kind of have to take on faith, it means you're going to be doing it out of trust and love, not out of a fear of punishment or just to be better than the other kids in your class. So right now, we're in a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, Jesus is telling us what it's going to look like to grow up spiritually. Our instincts tell us it's going to be either rules or no rules at all. What Jesus shows us is that love means something. It's not conceptual or nice feelings or whatever you want it to be. Love has specifics. And we're not made right with God by getting these things right, but these things don't stop being right. So last week, our passage talked about uh, transforming our understanding of the law. And Jesus knew that we were going to be confused by what he said about this. You know, we've got a new covenant, but I'm not here to abolish the law. You have to be poor in spirit, but you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees. So he immediately moves into these four case studies that we have up here. He's basically saying, okay, let me show you what I mean. Before we dive into those, let me just say, there are a lot of tough things in today's passage. Pastor Bill and I were meeting to do some sermon prep. He asked, what things might we need to be careful about because they're going to be tough? And hell didn't even come up. So bear with me. We're going to be focusing on three things today as we go through this passage. First, we're going to be looking at how Jesus is calling us to grow up. It's not about winning on the technicalities of the law. It's not about defining good and evil ourselves because we're grown up now. Righteousness is and always has been about right relationship with God and with people. So we're going to be looking at how Jesus calls us to grow up into that understanding. Second, Sky Jatani's book on the Sermon on the Mount has a great title. It's called, What If Jesus Was Serious? Because a lot of theologians have looked at the Sermon on the Mount and said, well, 
what Jesus is doing here is he's purposely setting up unrealistic expectations so that we'll see our need for a savior. But God doesn't work that way, does he? We're the ones who say things that we don't mean. God is not like that. And we sometimes look at this whole, well, we're not under the law, we're under grace now, and think, well, the rules don't apply. I just need to have spiritual feelings. We sort of treat what God says as less than real, less than serious. Well, in his novel, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis gives us an image of his main character visiting heaven, and he realizes that he looks like a ghost there, that heaven is actually more real than our world. And he gives us that image because we have this instinct that things that we can't see are less real. That's the second thing we're gonna be looking for in this passage, how the things that Jesus tells us are actually more real than what we usually think or experience. So we're looking for how Jesus is calling us to grow up. We're looking at how what he says is more real, not less than we think. And we're gonna be looking at how this passage is good news. Jesus said a lot of hard things. All of it is called the good news. And a lot of the good news, here's a spoiler, a lot of this good news today is going to hinge on the fact that Jesus is already showing us what he means because he is showing us what God is like. So let's dive in. Murder, that's an easy one. Most of us can count on one hand the number of people we've murdered. I hope. So Jesus is calling us to grow up in our understanding of what murder means because he says here, contempt is contempt. We're seeing this now, aren't we? As our culture learns more about microaggressions and subtle racism, we're realizing that when there is contempt, people perceive it, whether it's coming out in outright violence or not. And it does actual damage. It affects the way that people expect to be treated. It damages your psyche, it causes stress, and it causes stress on your body that actually decreases your lifespan. And racism might be the easiest way to see this, but it's true on a smaller scale too. It's true of abuse. It's true of our toxic internet culture. I remember being at a prayer meeting and one of the families we were praying for um, was a family that had lost a loved one to suicide after workplace bullying. Think how it just changes your day when you know that somebody you're working with doesn't like you. Jesus is not just blowing smoke here. Our contempt does literal damage. What's in our hearts has a real impact on earth. And if the spiritual realm is more real, it definitely has an impact there. Now, just to take a step back, Jesus is not talking about just getting angry. Jesus himself got angry. God gets angry. But what he talks about in this passage, um, he says, anyone who says raka will be in danger of the court. Raka was, if you look in your little footnote in the Bible, it was an Aramaic term of contempt. And similarly, he says, you fool, in that passage. In the Hebrew understanding, fool didn't just mean somebody lacking in intelligence. It also kind of implied that they were rebellious against God. So these terms that he's talking about, aren't just expressions of anger, these are ways that we write people off. There is a world of difference between coming to somebody and saying, here's how you hurt me and let's fix this, and saying, you're just a bad person, I'm done with you. So the question is not, do you ever get angry? The question is, does your anger move you to seek their good 
by giving them the gift of your honesty? Are you treating them with love by believing in their capacity to grow? Or are you labeling them and leaving them? Now notice how quickly Jesus moves from you being the offended party to you being the offender. Broken relationship is broken relationship. It doesn't matter whose fault it is, peacemakers seek reconciliation. And then he moves very quickly from it being a brother to it being a courtroom adversary. It doesn't matter if this is a close friend or a business relationship or any other type of relationship. Peacemakers seek reconciliation. So the good news here, and there's a lot of it actually, the good news here is that when Jesus says, let me show you what I mean, he literally means, let me show you what I mean. God sought reconciliation with us not only for all the things that we've done against him, but even when we're the ones mad at God, he takes the initiative. He's not afraid of or bitter about our conflicts with him. He still wants us. He still wants to be in relationship with us, whether he has a legitimate claim against us or whether we're mad at him about something. He still wants to be around us. The good news is that God brought himself to the altar as a gift. And he didn't just come to make his sacrifice and get out. He spent 33 years getting to know people, walking in their shoes, loving them, forming relationships, and then he offered his gift. And if he did it, he can show you how to do this. More good news, this passage assumes that you will have conflict. So you're not failing if you have it. The good news is that you don't have to live with the clutter and stress of carrying around broken relationships. You can carry them to the altar where Jesus was offered. He accepts our very willingness and even our broken relationships and sins as a gift on that altar. Easy enough, right? Let's move on to adultery. This is sobering because all of us have looked at people in ways that dishonor them. And Jesus says, it's really serious. It is serious enough that he starts talking about gouging out eyes. And the people who were listening said, what? This is an instance where what Jesus is talking about is more real, not less real than we think. If your wife says, I can't stand our fighting anymore, this is killing me. You take it really, really seriously, but chances are you don't check her vital signs. This is something where Jesus is telling us, take this really, really seriously. He is not asking you to go out and perform surgery on yourself. Please don't. But why not? Why is he not asking us to perform surgery on ourselves? Well, because we're made in God's image and our bodies are part of God's good creation and we want to honor that. So why dishonor the image of God in somebody else by looking at them as something to give you pleasure rather than as a holy image bearer of God? Or why dishonor your own body? Because thought patterns change your brain. And we're talking structure, not just chemistry. It affects which neurons are connected to each other and how strongly. Studies show that pornography changes the brain in the same way that heroin does. It is a long-lasting effect that affects which genes are turned off and turned on. It's serious stuff, and it actually physically changes you. This is why we cannot indulge in lust in the privacy of our own hearts and be innocent of adultery. Because thought patterns we, the, that we choose to engage in change us, and they change the society around us. Porn consumption is linked to higher levels of sexual assault in those areas. 
The way that you look at a person changes the way that you interact with them. So if we're not to, supposed to take this whole maiming thing literally, how are we to take it seriously? How are we to grow up in our understanding of this? Well, one of the ways is that just because we can't see it, it doesn't mean that the damage to your brain and the damage to your soul aren't real. This is an instance of what we can't see is more real than what we can see. What Jesus is saying with this whole throw your hand away thing is that it's okay if throwing this sin out of your life is painful. Lust often covers up a really deep loneliness. So when you throw this away, you're gonna be facing something really, really real. What he's saying is that it's okay if it's embarrassing because people usually notice when you walk up to them missing an eye. It's okay if it slows you down and you're not on top of the world controlling everything and it is as necessary as amputating a gangrenous foot or removing a cancerous tumor. It will kill you otherwise. The good news here is that God cares about the way that people look at you. He does not want you violated even in the privacy of someone's mind. That is a lot of value that God places on you. And God cares about your mind. He doesn't want to see it mangled by unhealthy and wrong patterns. He values the inner workings of your heart. The good news is that God sees what is real. So if he wants to deal with your sin, it also means that he wants to deal with the loneliness that it's covering up and he's not gonna leave you alone there. The good news is that Jesus went through every temptation that we do, and he can deal gently with those who are being tempted. Sometimes it's hard to figure that out um, when it's a sin in your thought life like Jesus is talking about here, but the Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. So that means that being tempted in this way is not in itself a sin. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He doesn't judge you for being tempted, and he can walk with you through being tempted. The good news is that Jesus went through pain and public embarrassment. Jesus slowed down for us. Jesus was cut off and cast away for us. And that is why the great physician knows how to cut away and throw away the diseased parts of us and leave you not less whole, but more. Well, then Jesus moves on to the topic of divorce. And this is also a very hard, painful topic. So first of all, before we even get into this, Jesus is not condemning you if you have been divorced. He is not condemning you if you have been remarried. And he is not calling you to leave your spouse now if they happen to be your second or third spouse. Also, if you have left because of abuse, you have not done something wrong. They are the one who have broken the, co the covenant of marriage that they made to honor and care for and protect you. So one of the things Jesus does by reminding us of God's original intention for lifelong marriage is affirming and caring for the pain that you have gone through if divorce is something that you've experienced. There is so much to say on this topic and that would have to be a different sermon, so we're not gonna dig super deep into that, but um, if you are struggling with that, the elders will be happy to talk with you. There are, there are people here to care for you in any difficult thing you're going through in life. So what is Jesus doing here? Well, there was a debate going on um, about a century before he was born on what constituted a legitimate divorce. 
And it hinged on this verse in Deuteronomy that says it's for a cause of unfaithfulness. Now, Shammai said, well, the cause is unfaithfulness. You can get divorced if they've been unfaithful. Hillel said, it's a cause of unfaithfulness. It's anything that could cause me to want to be unfaithful. So if my wife burned dinner, that's a cause, and I can divorce her. Now, before you go judging Hillel, we've all made bad decisions when we're hangry. But they were arguing about the technicalities of the law, and they were propping up the privilege of the powerful. Because the way that the Old Testament had constituted divorce, women could initiate it if they were being mistreated. This new any-cause divorce, women could not initiate. So Jesus is calling people to grow up into a righteousness that is about right relationship. And in Jesus' teachings about divorce, he takes it a step further. He says that even the existing law for divorce was there not because God wants it, but because the law is realistic about sin. It says don't murder, and then immediately says, okay, when somebody does murder, here's what you do. Because God knows that we're going to do it anyway. The Old Testament had laws about slavery, not because God likes slavery, but because he knew that human beings oppress and enslave people, and there needed to be parameters in place to protect people. So the Old Testament had laws about divorce, not because God ever likes to see broken relationship, but pr to protect the vulnerable. In the ancient world, a woman whose husband rejected her was sunk unless she could prove that she was officially single because no man was going to marry her and support her children if there was a chance that this other guy was going to come back and take back what this new guy had invested in her. So divorce laws were there to protect women. But it was basically societal duct tape to make the best of a bad situation. Jesus tells us, Forget the technicalities. There are real people at stake whom God loves, and his desire is for love and not broken relationships. And this is important because of how we as humans often misdefine love. We can easily say, well, Jesus is about love and not rules, and I don't feel love for my spouse anymore. I feel love for this other person. Jesus is saying love means something. The law of love is not follow your heart, it's follow God's heart. And as we see in this passage, love is often a lot harder, a lot messier, a lot more courageous than the fluffy thing we think of as love. And it's also a lot harder and messier than the sort of sterile, aloof debate that the Pharisees were doing. Love is not about avoiding conflict, it's about going through conflict into restoration. It's not going wherever your affections point you, it's pointing your affections in the direction to which you've committed. The good news here is that God is faithful. The good news here is that God does not look for a technicality to reject you on. So many of us ask, will God still love me if? Am I still a Christian if? The answer is yes because God is not looking for a loophole or a technicality in order to reject you. The heart of God is faithful love, and the good news is that he's willing to teach that to us. So then Jesus moves on to oaths. Oaths are not a huge deal now. Back then, there were really complicated teachings on what made an oath legitimate or not. So the Pharisees said, well, if you swear by the temple, your oath is not legitimate. If you swear by the gold in the temple, then it works. 
or if you swear by the altar, it doesn't mean anything. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, then your oath is binding. Are you seeing a pattern here about these whole technicality things? It was not fun. But Jesus is saying, what glorifies God more? Getting some formula right that dictates whether or not you have to tell the truth? Or just telling the truth and following through on it? Or if you think about God is the creator, which means that he made all of reality and in a real way defines what reality is. He loves truth and in a real way is the truth. So could they really think that it pleases God to look for loopholes in truth telling? Or by not loving the truth, were they showing that God was less real and important to them than their own ambitions were? Well, we're not really into oaths as a culture, um, not as much as they were anyway, um, but it's still worth asking about our relationship with the truth. Are we living as grown-ups, or are we treating the source and definition of reality as something less than real? Our culture often seeks to define truth as what we want it to be, or what fits with our preconceived notion, or what feels right, and do we honestly think that God needs us to define reality for him? Or when we ignore difficult truths to preserve our comfort or suppress the truth to avoid conflict, what sort of insult is this to the one who is the truth? When we're obnoxious and insensitive with the truth because we're more concerned about proving ourselves right than with the real lives of the real people the truth affects, are we sidestepping God's will just as much as the Pharisees looking for their loopholes? God's purpose is that we would be people whose word you can trust. Jesus is saying, if you need an oath to say, this time I actually mean it, you're already in trouble. So all of that is great, but it's hard. The key to this whole passage is that we are not made right but with God by getting this right. We can get this right because we have been made right with God. The Pharisees' approach was get every detail right or else. That leaves, leads to fear. It leads to guilt. It leads to shame. That's really, really tiring. Ask me how I know this. The pagan approach was just throw out all the rules. And that leaves people floating. And it leaves you with the results of whatever sins you've chosen to indulge in. That is also not very fun. Jesus' approach is that you are already accepted. And so you can have joy in pleasing God. You can have joy in knowing him and imitating him. And that leaves you with so much energy because you have love to spare. You have graciousness to spare. You have respect for people because God has placed so much value on you. God has been faithful to you so you have faithfulness to spare. God has been honest with you so you have honesty to spare. The good news in this passage is that God does not say things he doesn't mean. Jesus really does want to turn you into somebody that you would love to meet and somebody you would be so proud to be, somebody who looks like Jesus. Because Jesus is somebody who takes the initiative to reconcile, even when we've done him wrong who looks at us as precious image bearers of God, who is faithful in love even when it would be easier not to be, someone who tells us the truth. 
And Jesus would not have gone to the lengths that he did of becoming poor in spirit and meek and persecuted and giving up everything to reconcile us to God if he then meant to abandon us on a fruitless quest. If he took the initiative to reconcile with sinners, he's not going to stand aloof and judge us for how well we do these things. If he walked among us in our weakness then, he'll do it now. Jesus does not call us to an impossible standard that only the strong reach. Jesus calls the weak and the poor in spirit and calls them blessed. The good news in this passage is that Jesus has promised that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Let's pray. Lord, in this culture where um, so many of us feel that we don't even know who to trust anymore, thank you that we can count on you to tell the truth. Thank you that we can count on you to mean what you say. Thank you that we can count on you to love us faithfully. Thank you that you have given us respect. And thank you that you have brought reconciliation to us even when we did not deserve it. Lord, out of the grace given to us, would you teach us how to show others that same love and respect and grace and faithfulness and honesty? Lord, we know that you don't judge us for when we fail, but that you pick us up. And so we pray that you would encourage each person here and that you would give us the joy of knowing you have redeemed us. In Jesus' name, amen.